These are the boys of Puente Hope. These are the men who took the cliffs. These are the champions who helped free a continent. And these are the heroes who helped end a war. Republicans seek to take control of the House of Representatives. Republicans are going to retake both the House and Senate. A liberal MSNBC host warning Democrats about the potential for a red wave. Do we have any sort of canary in the coal mine type indications of where we may be headed on that front? Fox News is calling the Virginia governor's race for Republican Glenn Youngkin. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. Welcome to the Ruthless Variety program. We have an action-packed program uh, today. But, Johnny, why don't you start out by giving us a little flavor for what we just heard old, from old uh, the old Gipper. Well, as most of our listeners remembered yesterday, it was the anniversary of D-Day, very important day in American history, and one that's marked by basically every single president of the United States since it happened. Ronald Reagan, obviously, George Bush, Bill Clinton went there, Barack Obama made a speech, but uh, as of this recording, the White House hasn't put out a statement. They haven't released one tweet. But you know what they did do? They they changed tariff policy on Cambodian solar panels. <laughs> <laughs> My God. Oh. Hell of a way to mark the anniversary. Well, that gives you a little flavor for what we're dealing with with this administration and, and in a way that many things can't, right? I mean, that's just... <laughs> It seems like a simple thing that you'd be able to do, but not the Biden administration. Can't uh, even get that right. So we got a, a great episode. We have today's guest, Mike Summers from the American Petroleum Institute. A uh, serious guy with a serious job, but he's also hilarious. I've known him for years, and he basically can break down gas prices like nobody's business. Yeah, I was going to say, um, you know, he didn't seem that serious based on the level of laughter I heard here from the studio when this was being recorded earlier today. Well, I, I've known him for a long time. We've seen some things. We've seen some Sounds things. Sounds like it's going to be a good one. I can't wait to listen. Yeah, it, it, it is. It's going to be great. Uh, we also have a sponsor for today's event. It is Masterworks. And Masterworks, guys, I got to tell you, this partnership has really worked out. You'll recall that it is a, a disruptive site that basically takes fine art, commoditizes it for regular Americans to invest in. Mm -hmm. And what we found over the years based on their information is that it is a great, a great investment, particularly in times like this. And so Masterworks was initially a startup uh, valued about a billion bucks that offered access to once exclusive art markets but it now allows everyday investors to get involved. And they get things like Banksy's and Picasso's and, right. and things like that. And, and those blue chip art prices have outpaced the S&P 500 164% 1995 to 2021. Uh, yeah, right. Well, so here's- like, 164%. That's just like completely nuts. Not too shabby. Not too shabby, but they've actually, so there's individual breakouts of things that they've done, which I, th I find helpful. Because I'm not a fine art collector, <laughs> believe it or not. I know a Monet or two, maybe uh, a Van Gogh, but that's my that's it. But I've now signed up for Masterworks because, listen, in December 2021, Masterworks exited a painting by artist George Kondo, giving investors a net 31% annualized return. Wow, nice. Right? It's got 400,000 users. It's securitized over $500 million worth of contemporary art. Folks, this is a fun, interesting 
deal to put your money and we like it here on the ruthless variety program yeah uh all right so elsewhere we have some we have an announcement to make we got an announcement to make we do we have a new live event location i know many of you have been waiting on this because we really haven't done one here in a little while it's probably been since what february or so since we did the live show in dc yeah, it's been a while, and people have been asking us every single week, when is the next one, when is the next one, and today... Yeah, well, and today we can announce we are doing a live Minnesota event. We're going back to my hometown. Back to the real America. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we're going to go uh, Wednesday, June 29, 7 o'clock, at Tequila Butcher at the Caribbean. And that th- what this place is, guys, is it's on Lake Minnetonka. Oh, <sighs> Right, I'm very excited. Yeah, Yeah. it's gonna be awesome. It's gonna be good, right? I got all of my fellas. Lake Minnetonka. Yeah, Lake Minnetonka in a beautiful June summer, late June. Oh, it doesn't get better than that. What a treat! We're gonna blow the doors. I frankly don't have any choice but to (laughs) blow the doors off. I've now got expectations, (laughs) right? I mean, if I was there alone, we would be blowing the doors off of it just because of the people who are gonna show up to this. But the fact that we're bringing the Ruthless Variety program. Is really, I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to this. And tickets for this are going live this week, right? Yeah, at some point this week, you just got to stay tuned because we're going to process all that and we'll get that out to you ASAP. We'll have uh, mostly uh, online, but then I, I think what we'll do is next episode, we'll preview where you can get it ahead of time so if you're listening early in the morning you got to get in and yeah yeah but like make those plans now so when that link is live yeah you can act on it because if you may remember when we did the dc live event it sold out in like an hour so um yeah make sure you listen on wednesday yeah you gotta listen in um all right so you did some traveling smug i did i did uh i went out to denver this past weekend uh, and I want to give specifically a shout out to a minion when I was in the Denver airport on my way back. Listening Amazing. to Ruthless. Amazing. I mean, like, what a small world. And, 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 and how'd you know? Well, they started playing the Weaver Man shanty, right? <laughs> it was, I mean, you and loud be, as hell. kidding. Loud Someone just hell. got that queued up yeah, in and, a and public place. They, I love it. They just started firing it off. And I'm, I'm like looking around and there's like, you know, I mean, there's a ton of people. It could be anybody. So I just tweeted out, shout out to whoever that is. What you know? What a small world. So, so you actually didn't encounter the individual. Didn't you even couldn't find, find out who it. it was. No, no. I mean, like it, it was. It was. In, it was loud. Like they were playing it loud and proud, <laughs> representing out there at the Denver airport. Uh, and and also that's a great town. It's it's a shame there's like a bunch of hippies and whatever. But just like the Rocky Mountains, you know, especially at this time of year, the weather was beautiful. Every day was like, you know, low seventies. Wow, amazing, amazing town. Oh, that's incredible. Well, I love that. I love that. And you had an encounter with a, a large animal. From I, I did. So uh, rented a car and went to, it's called like the Arsenal of the Army, this like nature preserve. That's just, I'd say probably about 30 minutes from downtown. And uh, they, they said on the news, oh, you know, some like baby bison had been born there recently. Spring has sprung, you know, all the animals are out there, deer and, 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 and gophers and such. Uh, so, so, so I hop in the, in the rental, I, I go out there and I thought it was kind of a situation where like, like early on there was, there, there's fences and stuff and, and I could see off in the distance, there's a ton of Buffalo and they're enormous and that was awesome. I keep driving and they're like, okay, do not exit your vehicle. There could be like wild animals about, 
And so I keep driving. There's like gophers and such. And I'm like, dude, like I'm not nervous about getting out of my car and a gopher rolls up. I keep driving. And then just a bison's in the middle of the road staring at me. I've seen the video of this. Now, this is <laughs> this is super intense. And it really put it really put your sort of animal wisdom to the test because you were very authoritative on what you ought to do yeah. encountering this bison. It's wild. And I feel like, I mean, it ended up to be the right call, but that could have gone either It could have gone so bad. So so I videoed the entire thing, <laughs> the entire encounter. Uh, and he starts like rolling up. Um, he gets so close to the to the car. It's like, it's a pretty big SUV. He gets close enough that he like sets off the like, you know, the motion thing on the front bumper that like <laughs> that helps you park. Car. Yeah. yeah. Well, it wasn't a car. It was, it, was, it was the damn bison. It was bigger than a car. Yeah. So I, I, I threw it in reverse. I was like, I don't want this guy thinking I'm like trying to challenge him. And I'm, I was talking this out loud, you know, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the best is during the video. Uh, my girlfriend was like, I'm, I'm starting to get nervous about this you know like situation <laughs> and and i i have like famous last words calm, was, calm cool and collected yeah, yeah. if, if it would have gone bad i sound like such an idiot but I was like, no i've seen this before it's just gonna walk past right <laughs> the perfect cue for this thing to just destroy the car and kill everybody but luckily it just like rolled back up like put his massive head up to the windshield looked inside and then just like slowly walked past the the back of this thing was was taller than I mean, it was absolutely immense. Humongous. This thing is like a tank. You'd have been, it, it could have taken you all out right there. Oh, and that's the thing is like anyone who would even consider putting bison on their list of animals. <laughs> like, I mean, absolute madness. This thing could have like destroyed the SUV and everyone inside with very little effort. I mean, it, they, they are enormous. Enormous. There was no rib kick there that was yeah, going to take Nothing that thing will down. save you. Like just accept death very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right. Uh, we should also note it is election day in California, uh, and I know some of you've been following this, Duncan. What we had uh, we had some interest in this as a primary election, obviously. Like what what's going to happen here? We have any idea? Um, gosh, I mean, this is all about a, another attempt to try to take out Gavin Newsom, well, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, I mean, we had uh, Schellenberger on. Yeah. Um, I mean. The smartest Great guy, guy you could Great guy. possibly meet, and somebody you'd obviously want to represent you. So that's our guy, right? Yeah. I mean, that's our guy here, is Schellenberger. Yes. Right. Okay. So I mean, if you're listening to this Tuesday in California, get out there. Yeah, get out there and vote, vote. for Schellenberger. Yeah, exactly. Because it honestly seems like the only chance at this point of taking out the horrible governor Gavin Newsom. And and just the state of California lately. I mean, it's just like every day you just hear more and more horrific headlines. Things keep getting worse. So, I mean, it, it's like, uh, what's that saying? That uh, the definition of psychosis is, is like trying the same thing again and again. Expecting a different result. That's yeah. the thing is like at this point, you really got to draw the line. Things are not going to get better with the same idiots in charge. You got to change up who's who's calling the shots. Yeah, and he's way outside the box in terms of what's been tried before. And so then, uh, and then Chessa... Um, the uh, DA yeah. in San Francisco. DA Weather Underground, whose parents were actual terrorists. <laughs> no, seriously. Uh, being serious, folks. Yeah. This is not like hyperbole. They're like actual members of the Weather Underground, killed people. Um, and, and Chessa, who has basically legalized crime. because and, On the ballot now. And, and this is the thing. is like, you know, the whole liberal idea, especially of these these DAs that, that get sponsored by George Soros and these left-wing dark money groups, they're like, the compassionate thing to do is to basically legalize the selling of heroin and fentanyl. <laughs> right. And, and create like safe sites and give people needles. 
and and, and empower, we're going to empower people to use safely. And you have to call, and you have to use the term unhoused. Like yeah. this is very compassionate. Oh, it's unhoused. Yeah. I mean, like, and how is this compassionate? Every single thing on the CVS shelf is free for the taking. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Just walk in. Just walk in and put it in a box and walk out. As is Nordstrom too. If, Nord- you, right. if you're if you're interested. <laughs> Um, all right, so uh, that's California. Last thing we need to mention, Oz, uh, soon to be Senator Oz, uh, from my perspective. One uh, has officially won the Pennsylvania primary over McCormick. You'll recall that that went to uh, you know all kinds of legal wrangling and recounts and everything else. And McCormick is now conceded as a gentleman. Uh, and Oz now is our nominee, and he's going up against Fetterman. Which you know, look, we'll the have news a w- about Fetterman. I mean, man, especially what's been coming out lately of like it's wild. So he was he had been hospitalized with with various. I think there were heart issues, right? Or, yeah, or, or, he had a stroke. He had a stroke. He was hospitalized, but he had a heart condition that I think led to the stroke, and he wasn't. And that's the thing care. is, yeah. apparently, for years he'd refused to take the medication his doctor prescribed. And as lieutenant governor, didn't tell the public about any of this Aye. at all Aye. for two years. Well, listen, that's it's not the way that we want to win it because uh, we're going to win it either way. And Oz is a terrific candidate. You heard him here on the Ruthless Variety program. I'm sure we'll have him back before election day. But that that's a super important one. So keep your eye on that. Congratulations to Oz. Let's start with this because it has captivated much of our audience and and much of us in D.C. <laughs> oh, yes. It's a little insider, but it has to do with the meltdown at the Washington Post. We have talked for a long time about how some of these news outlets, we've talked about it with Politico, Washington Post, New York Times, that basically the inmates run the asylum. Right. And I think it's important we tell the story because it gives you a sense of the, you know, the reason why they write the garbage that they do, because these are some of the lunatics that are driving the trains over there. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's important, like a lot of these names and people that that we're going to discuss I mean, no, no serious American has heard of, of these people because yeah. they're just like journos at the Washington Post, you know. It's and, such, an and they're act- just having their like little school fight. But well. the beauty is, I mean, written large, this is showing is just like how the woke left is just collapsing in on itself. Like, yeah, they're just they, like corporations have stopped giving a damn. There's no more free hits. Like DeSantis has basically been showing what happens when you hold the line. So they're like, well, shit, we have nothing else to feed on. Might as well just feed on each other. <laughs> You're just seeing it happen in real time. And you might ask yourself, where do they find the time to attack each other all day and night and through the weekend? Well, there's a Democrat in the White House, so there's no critical coverage. <laughs> the so they're going to attack them. It's not like it's a busy day at work when you're covering <laughs> yeah. the president and, and he's a dem. Right. So it all started with our old pal Taylor Lorenz. Yeah, yeah. Right. And Which, folks might remember her as the journalist... She essentially is, I, I think, in her 50s, <laughs> and she covers TikTok, which is odd. She covers yes. children on TikTok, which for a middle-aged person is super weird. Like, uh, so so she's she's the person who doxed libs of TikTok. My God. That starts real hard. Uh, yeah, we don't, I mean, to, for the record, we don't know what age. Uh, she's got a, a great uh, variation in reported ages. Yeah, she has. she's gone to the lengths of... Uh, the internet archive which archives everything she's had them she she like sent a letter to them to make sure that they do not archive her tweets she has uh, had people edit the Wikipedia so it removes any exact date of her birth like so somebody on Twitter I don't remember who it was, it was a few months ago said like 
Taylor Lorenz has the same date of birth as like medieval kings, you know, (laughs) (laughs) on or or about this 10 year period. Yeah. Like her Wikipedia is just like a guess. They're just like, maybe. So it started with her in an article that she's written because almost everything that she writes ends up to be a complete disaster for the Washington Post and everybody else. Because in addition to a less than committed uh, pursuit of facts, She's just sort of sloppy in a lot of ways, right? And so the Washington Post issued, uh, this is according to the New York Post, the Washington Post issued two lengthy corrections to an article by its notorious internet culture reporter, Taylor Lorenz. The piece, uh, which had already been secretly edited, after it was published Thursday, uh, detailed how content creators made out big in the sensational Johnny Depp Amber Heard defamation lawsuit that ended last week. So, all right. Apparently, she said that she reached out to people, and it said in the article that she reached out for comment. And it turns out, like these people, were yeah, like, those what? people, those people, they send out like tweets, and they're like, "We were never asked right. for comment." Well, see, that's and this is actually one of the reasons I really like her beat. Just hear me out on this, okay? Um, because it's really hard to lie about people that have platforms. Mm. You know oh, that these people wow. have thousands and thousands of followers, and so if you try to do them dirty, like. They can tweet out and be like, actually, all of that's wrong. You never reached out to me. Right, right. You know what I mean? It's like instant, instant correction. And that's and that's what happened. And that's the great thing about the Internet. It's like the Dave Portnoy model. Right. Right. If you're going right. to come for him, you better have your facts in line because he's going to get online in a He's hurry. got a megaphone. Right. And the fact that the Washington Post secretly edits the piece to try and save her. Well, and then she also basically threw her own editor under the bus. <laughs> and she tweets out at one point um, that... This, that that sentence that she had reached out to these people was added by the editor or something, and you know that well it's since been corrected. But you, you, know? you, you, you know what that that side fight betrays that she never called these people to begin with. She's <laughs> writing an entire story about a group of people. And Correct. She never even called them to find out if it's true or to get some accuracy. We know what her editor's requirement is, Taylor. You can get a quote from them and put it in the 14th or 15th paragraph. And it also, it's what she would have done anyway, and she didn't even take she the didn't time even do to that. do that. She didn't do that. She's and, like, well, I can't do that if I leave TikTok. She's just scrolling through. She's found a way to hustle these companies into paying her to do this shit all day. And, I mean, and it's insane. Also, Ashbrook, the other thing is it validates basically the thesis of her own piece here that, you know, the re- like there are all of these like influencers and YouTube celebrities and people like that who are, you know, made all this money around the Amber Heard, Johnny Depp uh, defamation lawsuit uh, coverage because regular people do not trust the Washington Post to cover it. Yeah, they'd exactly. Rather, yeah. They'd, ra- they'd rather get their, their coverage from uh, legal bites or that umbrella guy than Taylor Lorenz. And the beauty and the reason why is because she doesn't actually fucking call people and get the truth. And the beauty is these people Such are like, good uh, these people are attorneys. So that's like why they were weighing in on this. And she's just like, I have opinions. And like, I think actually the lawyers are wrong. Though. Doesn't reach out for comment. Then like the Washington Post has to stealth edit it first. Then they add this like increasingly larger editor's note at the bottom of like all the times that she's lied about reaching out to these people, <laughs> um, and the and then like uh, hours later, Palmer Lucky, who now runs uh, Enduro, oh yeah, oh this guy, Ocul- this guy's Oculus. tweet thread was so good, awesome guy. So he was like, uh, folks, Taylor Lorenz did the same thing when she like made up facts about me and Oculus. Like, so he sold o- uh, Oculus, the VR company he founded, to Facebook, and she tweeted that like co-founder of Oculus is like fired and 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 and. 
she, she, uh, he's like, she had all the facts wrong. And she's like, what are you talking about? I never report on Oculus. And he just replies with a screenshot of her article. Like, Oculus. As if he's going to forget. By Taylor Lorenz, yeah. He, he posted, like, screenshot on the link. <laughs> like, this lady is just brazen about not caring about facts. Right. Or, or like, her own, apparently her own reputation. Like, the fact that you would, like, somebody, dude, if it's a story about you, you damn well know the facts. Yes. You know who wrote the article about you. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. And so for her to come back immediately and be like, I never wrote anything about Oculus. What are you talking about? Like, how dumb are you? <laughs> how dumb are you to not, like, maybe Google your own work and figure out if you fucking wrote about this guy? And I think <laughs> it also says something, like, if you give her the benefit of the doubt that she doesn't remember, it says how disposable her work is. She just slaps together some garbage in 10 minutes of scrolling through Twitter and TikTok and is like... I'm going to call this a story. She already extorted the New York Times into hiring her. They could not be happier to have her gone. And then she, like, talks shit about them on her way out to the Washington Post. And the cycle repeats itself. It's Awful back reporting. In. And, like, the, the the newspaper is constantly being shamed for, like, her mistakes, for, for her not getting basic facts correct. And, and what she does is she always tries to shield herself by being like, oh, no, I am yet again being, like, a victim of targeted harassment. It's the social networks which are wrong for not like protecting me from right. me being an awful person and doxing people and lying about people. But her whole premise, calling out people on the internet for commenting on things they know nothing about, it actually applies to her. That's, a, that's the, the story about her. It's the best projection <laughs> there is. She had this incredible tweet where she was like, I'm not someone who's like super privileged. I'm middle class. She went to an 80,000 a year Swiss boarding school. Like if that's middle class, like the people you roll with must be really fucking set if 80K boarding schools are middle class. It's what also is incredible to me, and this illustrates it, but we've seen this now in like almost every month that she's been employed, is that somehow she'll make this just dramatic mistake and her paper will have to go do a bunch of corrections. But in the end, she's the victim of this. Always. She has this incredible ability to always be the victim. Like when she did, I think it was an interview with CNN. When she, So she doxes libs of TikTok, like showing up to their family's houses yeah. and stuff like that, puts out their name and address, denies she put a link to this person's <laughs> name, address, and location. And the reason they do this, folks, is to send mobs. Like that. this is enforcement of of their views. But anyways, she denies she did any of this, then goes on CNN and is like, I'm the victim here. And so she cries for, she attempts to cry. It was, it was, it was the fakest attempt at crying I've seen. I'll say it right now. That was not real tears. And, the, and even the anchor was puzzled. She was like, what the hell is going on? Why are you crying? Uh, so she's like, oh, you know, it's awful. And I think the quote she said at the time was like, it's terrible. It's like the worst people on the internet will search out as much information as they can about you and try to ruin your life. And, and that's her business model. <laughs> that's her like, job. That's what you do for a living. And so she tries crying about it. And then afterwards, she's like, wow, CNN, I can't believe you would like lack the sensitivity to know how to deal with this topic, her, that would not lead to me getting more targeted harassment. So they put her on air and she throws and her she under the bus <laughs> minutes later. The entire world constantly fails Taylor Lorenz. Yeah, that's the problem. It's sort of like Joe Biden. <laughs> He's never responsible for anything. It's the same thing. It's like a liberal mindset. Right. Right. It's like Where they're it's, all fucking children. You I don't would take responsibility be, for anything that they do. I would be queen of the earth if not for you meddling people. <laughs> but not to be outdone. Uh, her colleague arrived on the scene. Oh, God, this is so week. good. <laughs> so good. This is Felicia Sanmez. You may remember her from uh, the death of Kobe Bryant. Um, 
Oh, where she immediately started uh, tweeting about the rape allegations and stuff while the yeah, guy they was ha- dead. They, ha- they hadn't actually even. I, I I don't think they'd even like fully settled the scene. Right. Right. I mean, this, this is was, a guy who died, a hero to a many uh, as a basketball player who died with his daughter. And and not just a basketball player. Like I mean, look, he he did a lot of community stuff. Too. Right. I mean, this was this was like a genuinely. I mean, he made mistakes in his life, obviously, as we all have. But like a beloved figure amongst right. many people. And as this is his, like as the news is showing like smoldering right. wreckage. Yeah. Yes. And it, they're like, okay, we're now pronouncing him dead. She tweets out the rape allegations against him. Uh, and so anyway, that's how she kind of gets on the radar. Well, her colleague, who's I know one of your favorites. Yeah, Dave so, Weigel, who is probably, I mean, in my opinion, he's got to be one of the furthest left activists in journalism today. Yeah. It's and and, and it, this 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 fact is a particularly sharp betrayal because the guy came up uh as a you know, quote libertarian who are libs to begin with, but like he, he was part <laughs> of like the Coke Associate program. He he like went through all the grants and stuff to get trained by libertarians. Well, I remember he, he used to cover cover the the Tea Party movement back in the day. Well, this that is the like dude beat. if you recall, which is the the history of this just indulge me for a minute is that he was originally employed by the Washington Post to cover the conservative movement, uh-huh. right? He was covered as the conservative side where Greg Sargent, who's still there, does the plumb line, <laughs> does the liberal side, yeah. right? And their idea was that if you have somebody that's just sort of embedded, we'll call it opinion news because they're a conservative or they're a, a liberal, but they can get inside and get real information. Are you going to bring up journalists? Is that where this is going? That's where, well, that's where go. it went, let's right? Go. Let's so go. then it's uncovered that this dude was a part of this, what they call a journal list, which was a list served to many, many journalists in Washington, D.C., that basically effectively operated as a talking point memo for left-wing causes. It was, it was basically the purpose of this group that Weigel was a member of, Journ-O-List, was to elect Barack Obama. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> People, I mean, like... And if you're a Zoomer listening to this, uh, like a listserv is like uh, like a DM group before DM groups. Nice. Right. <laughs> Nicely explained. There you go. It's exactly right. So anyway, they find this out. He gets fired from the Washington Post. He goes and does some other things. They hire Jennifer Rubin to yeah. be the new conservative. <laughs> <laughs> like, actually, we need a serious conservative and Jen Rubin's like, the rest it of, is me. The recitation <laughs> of the facts here is so fucking damning on their entire industry. <laughs> incredible. It's incredible. And I know for a lot of and you And we people, haven't even gotten to the shit. I, I know, right <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing so but not that's that whole encounter is not enough washington post brings him back yep. this time is a real journalist straight up straight right? up. no pretense of like that he's writing opinion he he's he's just writing hard news folks they're like you know what you know what you're right you're right he's not a conservative he is a liberal this guy so therefore have a history of being biased <laughs> now he can do real news <laughs> he's actually a campaign expert yeah <laughs> now i will say on the internet he does make attempts at humor yeah which is what got him into trouble here. because right? i mean that's one thing he must have forgot about the left is that is absolutely not fucking allowed if there, if there is one rule in the left and in journalism it's no fucking humor allowed you can't laugh you can't make a joke you can't say anything outrageous because everybody takes it literally and they're offended right right so enter weigel yeah R- weigel uh, RTs this tweet from uh, Cam Harless. <laughs> Says, uh, Little did Cam Harless know he was about to set the Washington <laughs> Post on fire. Right. He he tweets, every girl is bi. You just have to figure out if it's polar or sexual. 
which is like it's like a okay and see like the other thing is like in the wake of this i've like spent the weekend trying to come up with my own take on it and i haven't been able to come up with the second half is every journalist is bi whether it's biased or and i can't figure out the can't second. figure oh. it out can't figure it out but here's the thing but it's a joke this is a pro- it's this a, a jo- it's obvious this is obviously a joke yeah it's like right? an off-collar joke obviously it's pretty mean yeah, but I mean, it's a it's a joke. It's a, it's a joke. You could say it's a sexist joke, but it's a joke, right? He retweets it. Also, there's sexist sexist jokes told about men all the fucking time, right? 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 Let's go. Let's go. Don't get. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I mean, I I listen to a, a lot of comedy. I'm just saying. How is it not allowed to make off color jokes? You want to go in on the suffrage no, again? It's just pal? ridiculous. <laughs> just ridiculous. All right. All right. So. But you can't have fun, right? So immediately, Felicia starts the fire on this. Which is so good. I love this. Like, there, this brings me such a pure level of joy. Uh, like, like uh, uh, I feel like I'm on something. Like, this whole weekend, just watching them fight each other. I mean, it is so beautiful. It's, it's like in that Godzilla movie when he was like, let them fight when, when, when the monsters are fighting each other. This is so much better. It's like, okay. Oh, it's way better. It's the bullshit that they've been trying to enforce upon Americans, whether it's you have to use the term Latinx, you know, which like 98% of Latino people don't want used. But it's the same kind of policing that immediately yep. she shows up for a coworker, which is wild. <laughs> and, and it's not like this is not like you walk over to the cubicle next door. She's like, time to drag his ass on Twitter. <laughs> it is <laughs> literally. <laughs> that's the best part. The best part about it. Any human being that's listening to this, and you go to your workplace, you know, if you have a problem that you're sincerely concerned about with a coworker, you know, you, you try to address it with them. If you feel like that's not possible you have to go to like some, hr somebody right. in the organization who has authority and you, but you don't foment a digital struggle session <laughs> fucking on the entire internet like i was trying to conceive what this would be like it's like okay let's say we're all hanging out before we record the show discussing where we're gonna cover and someone says something offensive so, you know maybe someone might be like oh hey, that's fucked up but to be like i'm gonna wait and I'm going to go after this motherfucker on the internet. <laughs> oh, the craziest thing to do. I want all my followers to know how it's much I hate my colleague. so insane. <laughs> so just by way of background, uh, Felicia is a Harvard-educated uh, <laughs> political reporter. I mean, of course. And there we go. There right? we go. She's, she's been everywhere. Weigel Northwestern. Now, if you, if you could find two schools that have produced the most journal, maybe Columbia... You add yeah. there. And Chapel, Chap- Chapel Hill is just a factory for terrible. <laughs> so, so Horrific factory. But the point is, is that you're talking about two right. stereotypical yes. journalists in this day and age, right? They're everything. Well, they go, now she has had it, right? Smug. And like, I don't even know where this, like it starts with her tweets basically just calling him out directly, right? And this is great. So she screenshots that he retweeted that joke and says, Fantastic to work at a news outlet where retweets like this are allowed. Let's go. <laughs> and this just and this is becomes like the the blue check royal rumble of where like every blue check comes like jumping out from any group like whether they're like a CRT blue check or whether they're like a, a you know I'm just like a a, 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 a a woman's rights group blue check. They it's all just the, jump into the ring. It's just the worst Marvel movie in history. It's, it's so amazing. <laughs> And they're all just like, okay, how are we going to go at this? Because the problem is, so Weigel, who ostensibly covers, you know, conservative causes, 
is is like uh, pretty much in with the so-called dirtbag left. Like you think of Chapo, you know, folks like that, like the AOC kind of fans, yeah. like the the Bernie Bros, right? Right. Yeah. And they're, so and they're I actually like, have more respect for those folks because they're they they are left. But they're also just sort of unfiltered, they're, right? They're not interested about politically correct stuff. They're like, they just say what they think, which is apparently how this guy got himself into trouble. Yeah. And so, like, this is, like, just the entire left rolls up. It, it's, you gave the perfect example. It's like the end of the uh, the damn uh, Thanos movie, you know, yeah. where it's just like all these portals are opening <laughs> and every left is just running in. Every blue check out there is running in and being like, get his ass, Felicia. <laughs> like, get in. That is unacceptable. And then, like, the best is, I think it, 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 was, it was Felicia herself who tweets that, like, the problem here is you have someone who takes part in shaping the national narrative on politics with a sexist attitude. And it's just like, okay, can we pause for a second? So you're just letting the, you know, you're letting the game out. You're letting it out that you guys are trying to shape the national narrative. Like that's your job, right? Because the guy retweeted a bad joke. She's like, listen, as a journalist, it's up to us to tell people what to think. Like, we're supposed to control the politics in this country, and this guy's a sexist. What the hell's going on? What's happening here? (laughs) But you'll recall, so the backstory of the Kobe Bryant thing is that she got herself in a lot of trouble and actually got suspended by the Washington Post briefly over this whole thing. And when editors sort of tried to intervene in the Kobe Bryant thing, she did the same thing. She took it right to Twitter and had this like super public dispute with all of her employers, like out in the open. Right. And so now it seems like maybe this is just her play, right? Because now that this is happening out on Twitter, the brass has to get involved. That's the thing. So like she tried suing the Washington post. (laughs) Oh yeah. And the case got thrown out. Uh, the judge was like, no, this is ridiculous. Um, because she was like, I'm being silenced. When when <laughs> I can't just be like, you know what, fuck Kobe Bryant. He's Anthony's corpse. That's like my fucking right as a journal. But, but the judge disagrees. And so like my theory is now she's like, fire me, bitches. I will come back. This is round two. I'll say you fired me because I tried suing you the first time. You know, she's going to be like, that's the cause. So she's doing everything she can. To burn that motherfucker to the ground. And, like, I could not admire her more. Like, the Washington Post is such a rat's nest of left-wing activists. Should be burned to the ground. Bezos should get zero cents on the dollar on his investment. Go, Felicia, go. Burn it all down. <laughs> well, apparently, in in all of this, of course, CNN's Oliver Darcy shows up. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just so perfect because now he needs to know how this is happening, right? And, and he's a former Daily Caller guy. Like, there are so many Judases in this line of work oh. who just, like, chase the dollars. It's it's incredible. But now he's into the point where he wants to know what the internal conversation is going on, right? Because you've got editors now interacting on Twitter. Yeah, like, Felicia's tagging editors. Yeah. Like, straight up tagging them and being like... This is on your head. Weigel's got to go. Like, <laughs> well, this is a hostile environment. It, well, to pause for a second. So it gets even better. One thing that, that McDaniel, you forgot to put in here, is there's this guy. Oh, gosh. What's his name? 
is his last name like real or something? Real? Uh, who's he's? Uh, he's yeah, the other reporter. Yeah, he's a reporter. Yeah, Jose yeah. De Real. Yeah, did you see what he said? Yeah, Jose De Real. Like, he was like, "Hey, Felicia, we all mess up from time to time. Engaging in repeated and targeted public harassment of a colleague is neither a good look nor is it particularly effective. Turns out, language of inclusivity and the clout chasing and bullying. I don't think it's appropriate. There is such a thing as challenging with compassion. It only incensed her." he's like hey you know calm down maybe walk over to the cubicle and have a talk with the co-worker and and, and so she's like here's how i'm gonna kick off pride month i'm gonna drag the fuck out of my gay co-worker make an example out of this motherfucker <laughs> and like and, and she sends like she's like quote retweets him and she's like this is not clout chasing you're part of the system of misogyny here and then all like all the blue checks that she'd summoned before come running back to go after his ass so hard he like deletes his account right like, <laughs> the guy, <laughs> a prolific national reporter deletes his account and then like a, a day later he brings it back, right? And he was like, "Listen, as a gay, Mex- the only gay Mexican at the Washington Post is, 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 it's, you know, I feel like I have, you know, space to talk about. I don't know what's the whole thing of like being disadvantaged or whatever, marginalized, marginalized. Yeah. And and then she's like, "No, I'm still not done." She brings the mob not right today, back after his ass, dragging him like left and right, and and then like tagging the editors. Of being like, he's got to go too. I'm <laughs> sick of all this shit. But it's amazing. Like this is this is what's become of 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 wokeness. Is it's it's like okay, what's your checklist? You know, like what's your damage? He tried being like, listen, I got the high score. I have gay and Latino, and she's just like she's done with scoreboards, right? Oh, no. she, she just wants to burn the place down. She's taking it down to the studs. And you know, we so we talked about this with another, uh, other publications like Politico when they were trying to unionize, and they, and they were talking like all the internal slacks and stuff that go on are basically what you're seeing play out <laughs> yeah. over Twitter. It's like Mean Girls times a thousand, which it, it, which is it gives you a really good indication as to why it is that the national corporate media only covers things that nobody else is talking about in real America, right? Yeah, because the way that these guys interact with each other. It doesn't happen anywhere else, yeah. right? Yeah. During this no, whole this time, these di- this like multiple days long saga of Washington Post reporters going after each other asses, like gas continues to go up. People, you right. know, parents continue yeah. having a hard time getting baby formula and making ends meet. Meanwhile, they're just going after again. Each other. Where do they find the time? Well, there's a Democrat in the White House, Bingo. so they don't need to be. They don't and, need to be. And, and Joe Biden's out in in, in in a beach house in Delaware, so he can't comment on the Felicia Sanmez. You know, he was following it though. <laughs> well, and you know, the, these people six years ago, when Donald Trump became president, are like, "Oh boy, how did we miss that? How did we not see that coming?" And it's like, maybe because this is what you do all day. This maybe this is it. Maybe this is it. I think this is uh, written in media. It's unclear the sourcing, but I think it's mediate. Hassan Mez continued torrentially tweeting throughout the day Sunday about the dispute, retweeting dozens of comments from other Twitter users at her. Uh, at 11.30 p.m. Uh, Sunday or a.m. Sunday morning, Busby sent an email to the staff. This the is the executive editor. Yeah, this right? is the lady who's in charge of everything. Um, with the subject line, respect and kindness. 
attempting to address the ongoing increasing public infighting. The New York Times media reporter Ben Mullen obtained a copy of the email and posted it to where else? Twitter. And the best is like, so what happens as a result of this? Felicia immediately screenshots it, sends it out, and is like, no, the war must continue. There will be no, like, civility, none of that. She's like Hannibal. It's just like cry havoc. Let's let the dogs of war. Like, this this part from the article is hilarious, where it says, Del Real attempted to debate Sanmez, arguing that he supported her efforts to fight, quote, sexism and misogyny, but encouraging her to, quote, reconsider the cruelty you regularly unleash against other colleagues. Regularly. Which is so amazing. Where they're like... The, he, he's trying to be nice about being like, listen, you regularly try to ruin people's lives who you work with, but he has to be like careful because he's already gotten a taste of the hell she well, can Well, the account leave. came down once, right? I don't know what made him go back. I mean, this is, like, this is the worst in work environment in history. The best is like, while this is happening, I'm seeing like, uh, Washington Post tweet about like, "Hey, welcome! It's your first day." Yeah. Oh yeah, the intern. Yeah, it's the, the intern. first day of the interns. You see reporters <laughs> who are like, "This is a great place to work." Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, very clearly, it's not. <laughs> don't don't ask the lady in the corner for anything yeah. though. That, I, mean, I didn't tell like, you that much. It, I mean, imagine that situation for 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 if you're, uh, you know what? Is there an actual reporter at the Washington Post who's just trying to do their job? You know, that's why I say, you know, burn them all down. Like, I know a couple. They all deserve this. I know a couple who definitely are. And I know that those yeah, people who are, are basically as aghast as we are. I mean, they don't know what to make of this. Right. No, they're, they're trying to do their jobs. And so, they're like. And, and here, so the turmoil continued. Sanmez tweeted Sunday evening that she had, re- quote, received no apology from Del Real, who she accused of, quote, basis, baselessly accusing me of engaging in bullying harassment, and cruelty just for objecting to a sexist tweet. She also added that Del Real had emailed her, quote, accusing me of fostering a toxic workplace and had blocked her on Twitter. So, I mean, that's the shit. Everyone it's, just snitches on each other yeah. constantly. She and, and she tweeted that. She was like, this guy blocked me on Twitter. Here are his tweets. So she had someone send her screenshots <laughs> and, and she posts them on there. Unbelievable. And, and he's like, could you please stop being cruel to me? And she's like, no. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> not. Not today. And so it gets even better is right when we're recording, we get breaking news. Weigel's been suspended by the Washington. So Weigel's the one that got at the, at the end of it. That's the beauty. Is like It all came down to Weigel. Well, Felicia's literally just like, it's like the Spanish Inquisition. Like anyone twitches in that office and she's going to like get them. They're done for. She's flamethrowing the entire brass of the Washington Post. And so my, He's like, oh yeah, no, I guess it was a bad joke. I'll take my time out. My take on this is suspension is not nearly enough. Not nearly enough. He's got to go. She needs to keep tweeting. Yeah. Like, Felicia needs to keep pushing. She can get his ass. I think she can get his ass fired. You know, more power to her. Make that place so hostile. Like, just like people are terrified of breathing in that room, you know? Get to that point. Because I want every journal, especially these, like, I mean, they are all left-wing activists at this point. The fact that Weigel can be on journalists and then comes back and is, quote, uh, you know, uh, uh, a serious news reporter on the campaign trail, uh, campaign trail. Like, of course this guy's biased. Get his ass, Felicia. Get them all. (laughs) Dude, it's just such a great story. We'll keep you updated on it. Uh, The one that we talked about last week that I think we got a lot of interaction with and the audience seemed to really love 
is this new development that's happening with the media and Joe Biden's lack of agency. Yeah. Right? There was a big Washington Post story that we talked about uh, that we went through kind of almost line by line to give you an idea of how they're trying to excuse him for all of the problems. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I really loved looking on Twitter and seeing how much our listeners got it. Yeah. Of where the media tries this trick of where when you've got a Dem, especially like Joe Biden in office, they're like, these things are just happening to him. Right. The poor guy. Everybody gets it. The listeners definitely get it. And I appreciate that. I mean, I really enjoyed doing that segment. You may not have picked that up because I was screaming most of the time. I was very angry. But that was fun. Well, so there's a new entry. Okay. So Politico decided to have its own sort of version of this. And this is the, the tweet that went out uh, by John Lemire, who who is their White House correspondent, essentially. Uh, President Biden has run up against the limit of his powers. <laughs> the White House has grown increasingly frustrated by its inability to turn the tide against a cascade of challenges most out of its control, threatening to overwhelm the administration. Yeah, I, d- I did see this. The limit of his powers. <laughs> like the founding fathers prevented him from helping anybody with baby formula. There's not, there's not a man, woman, or child walking the face of the planet that has more power than Joe Biden. <laughs> and I think it's important to mention, and, and we have a really great guest today to discuss the, the situation, but this is the administration that on day one made their priority crippling American energy the, uh, producers across the board. They shut down Keystone XL, and then uh, over the weekend before he he, he uh, lets out that he's got COVID, you had uh, uh, Pete Buttigieg, uh, Merritt Pete, uh, say <laughs> Whatever that. his name is. Yeah, he was like, the problem here is is, is we got to drill more. Like he said, oil producers are choosing not to drill more, which is the most insane, Nonsense. insane. Like how's how's this guy being like? Okay, just drill harder. You're like get more oil. Well, you can, out of those. You'll hear from Summers on that uh, because it's a perfect. Mm-hmm. Ink, ink. When they couldn't sell the Putin gas hike, right? Yep. Their whole thing was like, oh, well, then we got to find somebody else to play. Right. So, oh, it's actually price gouging. It's not inflation. Yeah. It says the corporations, they're all corporation and they want to get really rich. And it's, yeah. they're, they're the bad guys. Yeah, because at a global price of 120 bucks a barrel, oil producers certainly wouldn't want to produce more. <laughs> and that's <laughs> right. It's like right. they, 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 they try, hate making money. Oh, they hate it. <laughs> they try to come up with these crazy ideas. And the media runs with these farcical ideas of like, this is all happening to Joe. This is not these decisions that yeah. he has made. He, that have caused these problems, I, and now all these terrible things are just happening to him. Yeah, no, he would be fix. He would fix all of these things if it wasn't for those pesky framers. <laughs> ben Franklin <laughs> stopped him 100%. from doing anything yeah. about gas yeah. prices. It's the so, filibuster's fault. It's, oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> a filibuster. It's broken. So, but this is my favorite line from the entire thing, which is, uh, you <clears throat> go through all the reasons why they can't do anything about all the problems they created, mm-hmm. right? And excusing them, saying oh, these are out of their control. Yeah, right. Because clearly, flooding like five trillion dollars into the marketplace and shutting down energy is not going to cause high gra- gas prices or inflation. Oh, it's right? almost like we had we were in a pandemic and had a year and a half of pent up demand in our economy. Well, we decided to spend five trillion dollars. Yeah, really fucking dumb. <laughs> weird, really dumb. But this is the best. It plans to sharpen its attacks on Republicans. Oh, oh boy, aiming to paint the GOP is out of touch with mainstream America on issues like gun safety and abortion, 
all while hoping the upcoming January 6th congressional hearings will further color the party as too extremist and dangerous to return to power. (laughs) It's just preposterous. (laughs) All it is, dude, all it is is just one reporter writing a future CNN Chiron that no one will read because no one is watching. (laughs) That's all this fucking is. It's it's so insane that their plan is like, here's how we're going to make them the GOP look out of touch. Right. We're going to talk about January 6th. We're just going to do it. We're going to manifest it ourselves. Which quite literally <laughs> no one gives a damn about right. while they're filling their car, while they can't get food for their kid, while they can't make ends meet with their bills. That's what they think. Here, here. That's that's how we're going to make them look out yeah. of touch. We're not going to do anything to right. address those issues. And that's the other thing is these people are so worried about how do we message our way out of this. You created this these disasters. Yeah, it's you not idiots. a message. It's not about messages. You have to, you know, when you get elected, people want you there to fix a problem that you said you're going to fix. These people haven't fixed anything. They've ruined everything. This is one way that easy press makes Democrats soft because they talk to a reporter. The reporter writes breathlessly about January 6th or about abortion or about some other topic Democrats want to talk about. And they think, oh, score. We did something big. We got it done. Meanwhile, if you look at the polls, there's like a 40% differential in every single public poll between the economy and everything else. Yep, yep. And it it just keeps them further and further out of touch. And it's real. They deal with a world that doesn't exist. Yeah, exactly. I mean, everyone who's dealing with prices is dealing with the prices. They don't give a shit what's on January 6th. Right, right. And they're going to cover it wall to wall. And you're going to be in a car with your kids ready to go on a vacation. You're going to stop at a gas station and it's going to cost you $120 to fill up your tank. And you're going to see five seconds of a CNN Chiron on the video that auto plays, you know, mm-hmm. when you're filling up your car at the tank. And it's going to this Chiron's going to say uh, something about from directly lifted from this article. And you're going to be like, huh, well, I just paid $120 dollars to fill and, up my and, tank. And, and that's right. the thing is like, well, well, you see polling that drops, which says that a majority of Americans now believe we are in a recession. You then have AOC go live on Instagram and be like, here's the thing, folks. You have to start saying Latinx. <laughs> like, why aren't you saying Latinx? It doesn't matter that polling shows Latinos don't I like want to be the, I've got the I got the keys to victory. Yeah. Latinx one, two, that's to fund and the, the fuck best out of the is she goes right at it and she's like, I don't care that Dems who are up for re-election are saying that Latinos don't want to hear it. You got to say it. Say it. (laughs) Say it. She says it straight up. She's like, I don't care if you're up for re-election. Fucking say it. I like that. (laughs) I like, I like that smug oscillates between Latinx and and then Latinx. 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 The correct pronunciation is Latinx. (laughs) Well, anyway, apparently all of this has come about in all of our uh, coverage of the coverage of Joe Biden. It's all come about because the president is absolutely apoplectic that his poll numbers have sunk below those of Donald Trump. Oh, yeah. no. Imagine, like, how could someone who we're in one of the worst, we are, this is a matter of fact, the worst inflationary environment of our lifetimes. How could the founders do this to him? <laughs> how could exactly. they limit his George powers? Washington has failed him. Yeah, the real bastards. Um, <laughs> so, but but I, the thing that where the rubber meets the road is the economy, as we just suggested. And here's something that, Dunks, I think you stumbled upon on your drive, yeah, uh, which was a CNN interview that I can't get enough of. Yeah, uh, just to set this up a little bit here, uh, yeah, Shudo's doing a uh, an interview with uh, someone from the economic team on Biden's economic team, and listen to this. I want to talk about other inputs in here. We did have the Treasury, Sec- Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen uh, say, in effect, uh, that she got it wrong in terms of how serious and how quickly inflation would become a problem 
You spoke to my colleague Poppy last year, and I just want to play what you said at the time and get your reaction. Have a listen. The risk of uh, overheating in terms of price pressures is considerably smaller than the risks of doing too little to finally put this crisis behind us. Do you, do you look back now and say, listen, no one has a crystal ball, but do you look back now and say, you know what, we juiced the economy too much and we underestimated the risk of overheating the economy and overheating prices? You know, look, just, just a complete knee buckler. You know, you know, look, oh, geez, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's just CNN did some ac- actual journalism. It's such a hysterical thing. He couldn't answer it. Yeah. So that's Jared Bernstein, um, you know, economic advisor to, to Joe Biden. And just like calling him out with the tape. <laughs> yeah, Unbelievable. We, yeah. We spend a lot of time criticizing um, the mainstream media on this program, rightfully so. But every once in a while, they do hard news. And when they turn like this. That lets you know how bad it really That's, is. That's you're exactly right. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's really well. I'll tell you how bad it is. Gap gas prices, as you all are going to vote in California, ten bucks a gallon. Ten bucks. The price of gas has now officially doubled nationwide since Biden took Jesus. office. Jamie Dimon says you have to quote brace yourself for an economic hurricane. And but, and so uh, Jamie is is the CEO of J.P. Morgan, and if in a few months back. He had said, you know, we, we might have some storms on the horizon. So this is like a continuation on his thought of where he was like, mm. this is much worse than I thought. <laughs> I mean, it's just so bad. Yeah, we they mentioned that Yellen uh, wanted uh, what came out in a book, actually, that Bloomberg has since reported is that Yellen wanted to scale back all of this relief because she was actually worried about the condition that we Inflation. now find our country. <laughs> Isn't that hysterical? Yeah. yeah, She's doing that, but nobody says anything. Right. Right. And so when you're hearing every single one of these Democrats that are up for reelection asking for your vote and saying that they've, they're doing everything they can do, they've since the very beginning, they've done everything they can do to try to prevent inflation and everything else. Bullshit. They all knew better. They yep. knew better. The, the other thing that sticks out to me on this this whole Yellen revelation is that we are now in the phase of the Biden administration where everybody is is carefully putting out how they would have done it, mm-hmm. what they saw coming and that somebody, I mean, we saw, we talked last week and we, we talked again today about Biden himself to blaming it on staff, Ron Klain's fault, somebody else's fault. Yellen is doing the same thing. They're insulating themselves from the criticism that they know is going to get bigger and bigger. Me- meanwhile, you've got the media out there and some congressional Democrats who their, their new line on inflation and everything is basically, well, uh, these Repu- I don't see these Republicans with any ideas uh, on how to, how to fix it all. Uh, other than, um, yeah, absolutely more oil and gas, I guess. But, like, obviously we can't do that. I guess. You we, know, can't, and it's we, like, can't, we can't relieve price pressures. <laughs> ah, the, parts, the part that's so funny to me is it's like, I mean, I know how to fix inflation. Take a fucking time machine back to before you spent $5 trillion. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, no, it's but like, dude, why it's is not it, even... Why is it our job to solve your problem for you? You have unified control of Congress and the White House, and, and now you're going to look around and be like, oh, hey, hey guys, um, I know we told you to go fuck yourselves for a year and a half on Capitol Hill and did whatever we wanted and spent $5 trillion, but now, hey, man, do you have any ideas? Where's your idea from Jeez, here? we crashed the car into the fucking wall. Now we're going to lean over and say, hey, uh, what's your plan to uncrash it? <laughs> well, but he Here's the best because it's not even just that. They're still working on BBB. Yeah, that's right. They're going to do another <laughs> new articles this week. That just they're, delusional. They're trying to get back out and spend another couple of trillion bucks. I mean, these people are nuts. They're nuts. They're nuts. Anyway, we're going to stay all over and, this. And, and that's the thing. So also when they tried this whole like 
they know they have an issue of being completely out of touch. When 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 their issues, you've got AOC out there being like, call uh, Latino people, Latinx. I don't care if you have an election coming up. Uh, so this was on Fox News. You had the Biden White House advisor on on, on economics, Gene Sperling, acknowledged Sunday. Yeah, he was on before me. Yeah, he didn't feel the pain of inflation and high gas prices as much as those making fifty or sixty thousand a year. But he continued defending. The messaging strategy and what was interesting is and this was pointed out online is this guy's calling in from his house one of his houses the one he has in santa monica <laughs> which folks who who don't know the la area like you know in in movies and such when you see that giant uh ferris wheel in the beach and everyone having a great time that's where he's calling in from talking about like you know i can kind of relate we, we passed <laughs> this plan that caused all this inflation and we shut down gas producers and, and we're causing all your problems and i can absolutely relate to you folks <laughs> It's unbelievable. All right, last story I want to get to before we go to our interview because uh, Smash, you you flagged this one uh, in the New York Post. Um, we've had a problem here on the Variety Program about uh, smug stealth editing some things. This is a family yeah, program. Yeah, you think you it think the Washington family program? You think the Washington Post is bad? Smug <laughs> is the ultimate stealth editor. We found this out. When did we find this out? Last last episode. He, yeah, we found it. We found it last. The, the the Tinder congressman who was our our candidate who who was lying about his age, and he he removed it. Didn't it. strike me as G rated. We have families listening. <laughs> well, so it when was you're, in. If you're curling the car with your kids. McDaniel put it in the document, and I and I didn't see it because Smug removed it from the document. Stealth edited. He stealth edited it. And no correction I, at the bottom. And then the next day, I send it to McDaniel, pissed off. I'm like, how the hell did this not make it in the document? And he's like, it was. <laughs> and then all of a sudden it became very clear. That's what I do. I fight for all the folks out there currently in their car with their kids listening to the program. You <laughs> well, don't so, have to shield their ears. So he, so you're going to get a twofer. <laughs> First is the original story. The original story that he edited out was a Valley lawmaker. This is this guy. Is he a congressman? No, he's Baker, a c- candidate. A candidate for yeah. Congress yeah. in Bakersfield, California? Yeah. Uh, well, this dude, uh, the the... What is this? The San Jose Sun, something like yes, that. Correct. Yeah, correct. San Jose. So Valley lawmaker seeking date fuzzy on age. So this dude, apparently they found that he was searching uh, or trying to to put up his profile. Yeah, and it, it, it would list himself as ten years younger. Yeah. on dating sites. Yeah, they're calling him Catfish for Congress. Uh, shout out to Callie Perkins at CLF for that one. Fantastic. Well, it's really good. So it happens to be a targeted race right so they're on this thing it makes political sense to do so this guy's clearly i mean look at the picture of this fella i mean he's got he's got a sport coat and a black t-shirt some some sunglasses and he tries to have you believe he's 34 the worst thing about him 45 is it says he also listed his occupation and employer as a quote agent of the government (laughs) (laughs) so so Here's the thing. I'm not going to belabor that story. I had a whole bunch of funny things to say about that story, but I'm not going to do it because I'm actually going to give you one worse. And this is the one that Ashbrook put in. And I'm hoping that you learn your lesson from this. This is about a guy ramming his Chevrolet. <laughs> this did, is in the New York see, Post. Did you see the headline? <laughs> yeah. I'm in a relationship with my 1998 Chevy, and our sex life is so special. Oh, come on. My That's a God. real story a in real the New York Post. Real story in the New York Post. So so take us through this, Smash. 
Well, the lead here is <laughs> is something that belongs in the New York Post um, Hall of Leads. Who the New York Post famously had the the headline uh, "Headless Body and Topless Bar." Yeah, all timer. That all timer. Yeah. Well, here's the lead of this one. Unlike most people, this driver loves ramming his car. <laughs> You, you believe that? <laughs> you believe that? Be, it would be so. I just gotta say this because we we let up top with how terrible the the Washington Post is. Like it seems like it would be literal. It would be fun to work at the oh, New York Post. Ah, yes. Well, yes. They, they go on to write an Arkansas man known only as Nathaniel for uh, privacy reasons. <laughs> is revving back into the headlines after saying he has, quote, sex with his 1998 Chevy Monte Carlo. <laughs> There's a picture of him kissing it. I lean over his fender and across his hood. Come on. And kind of press up against him, and Nathaniel so- says, as he engages in intercourse with his vehicle, which he has gendered as a male and effectually named Chase. That's the thing. So it's a him. That's the pronoun for the car. It's the guy. Well, it's important to get the pronouns right, Spock. Uh, footage uh, from the program shows the sales technician effective, affectionately kissing and caressing the hood of his car, saying, I love you, baby. Nathaniel revealed as he also likes, oh, Jesus, being inside of Chase. There are children listening. <laughs> sitting in the car. You mean sitting in the car? But I assume it means... Oh, God. I'm not reading the rest of this. <laughs> it gets worse, folks. I just want you to learn a lesson, Smuck. <laughs> if you're going to take out good content, you're going to be punished with worse content. <laughs> and that's like you got to fight terror with terror. You're, you're the Felicia of, uh, of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so now that we've all learned a valuable lesson, my apologies to Mike Summers over at API. Uh, welcome to the program. I want to welcome to the program a good old friend of mine. Uh, known him since we were sort of schlupping up up and down the halls of uh, Congress, not too far away from each other, uh, when he was with Speaker Boehner and I was with Leader McConnell. He is currently the CEO of the American Petroleum Institute. Mike Summers, welcome to the program. Josh, great to be with you. Listen, you know, I've, I've wanted to bring you on for a long time because you're kind of a funny dude, which is a rarity in Washington, D.C., uh, but I've been watching what you've been doing on Fox and everywhere else, talking about the energy crisis that we now face. And we've covered it quite a bit here. So I was like, well, why don't we get the guy that actually knows what he's talking about, right? Because, I mean, we all have our, our theories here. But, um, you know, you were saying you started in, in 2018 at API, and you've kind of had a – I mean, it's been all over the place since since you started. What is it, the chain of events that have sort of led us to this – moment because we've talked a lot about all the policy failures that contribute to where gas is today and and sort of how it affects our foreign policy and everything everything else but but i'd be interested in your perspective on that yeah so let's start with some raw numbers so at the beginning uh let's let's just begin with how america uses oil and gas today so you think about what world demand is throughout the the world we're think talking about about a hundred million barrels of oil used every single day uh, throughout the world. I mean, truly an amazing number. It is. But you think about that during the worst part of the COVID-19 pandemic, so think of April uh, 2020 or so, mm-hmm. the world was only consuming about 81 million barrels of oil every mm. single day. But when you put that into perspective, the, all Western economies basically shut down. People weren't traveling, right. they weren't going to work, they weren't going to school. But we were still using 81 million <laughs> barrels of oil every single day. 
I can't believe it doesn't run on wind and uh, solar panels. It's I was told incredible. that that's the way right? it all I mean, works. Our whole life is run by oil. I mean, all of the products that we use, the the makeup that we put on our face, the iPhone is made of petroleum products. So even when uh, world demand uh, suffered as a consequence of the COVID-19 pandemic, we're still using a ton of oil every mm-hmm. single day. Mm-hmm. So you you think about that perspective, but then you think about the fact that the world economy did really shut down for that period of time. And as a consequence of that, you know, supply went down in the United States and throughout the world as well. So right now we're finally in this period where world economies are starting to come back again and you're starting to see demand come back. We're almost at that level again of world demand being 100 million barrels of oil a day. In fact, we expect in 2023 that that number is going to go up to about 102 million barrels of oil every single day. And it really speaks to the importance of American energy leadership. We talk about this all the time at API, uh, about the importance of the United States continuing to produce. In 2008, when you and I were schlepping around (laughs) Capitol Hill, the United States was producing about 6 million barrels of oil every single day, and that number was going down dramatically. Mm -hmm. Um, Right now, we're producing almost 12 million barrels of oil a day. And the reason that that happened wasn't because of some government mandate. It isn't because of anything Congress certainly did. It's because the industry innovated in ways that made it easier for us to produce oil and natural gas here in the United States. Mm -hmm. And so imagine the scenario dealing with this terrible situation with Russia and Ukraine if the United States was only producing 6 million barrels of oil. It'd be a pretty bad deal. Be a very bad deal. The industry itself really self-sanctioned during that, uh, the the beginning of the uh, Russia-Ukraine situation. What the industry did is it said, we're not going to take any more Russian crude into the United States. That is a decision that Europe could not make. Right. It's only because of American energy leadership that we were able to make that decision and really because of the innovation that occurred in this industry that made that possible. Well, it's so fascinating because, I, look, I remember during the COVID epidemic when you were up in the White House with, with Trump uh, talking every day, not only about the situation that you were in, but presumably the situation that we now find ourselves in, right? And I remember there was a ton of different discussion about whether you purchase massive reserves, you do all these things, and then you get the Democratic point of view, which, you know, it appears to me, at least from the Biden administration, is like, now oh, we've, we've moved on since oil. And, and you wonder how much of this, given the statistics that you just laid out, like, is the pain the point to these guys? I mean, like, there's no way you erase petroleum from the United States consumption, whether it's in gasoline and cars or anything else. So like, what's going on with that? Well, what, what I'd say is that you know, this administration began in a way that was very detrimental to the industry. I mean, I think they believed from the very beginning that we could move on from oil and, and natural gas. Do they, so I wanna stop you on that. I, I believe that's right. I, I mean, you listen to them talk, they, they do believe that's right. Do they know the statistics that you just provided? <laughs> I, I do think that over the course of the last decade, because the, the United States has been able to produce so much energy here at home, energy prices actually went down in that decade. I mean, you, you think about the fact that from 2008 to 2018, energy prices actually went down for the American people, while other costs for American consumers continued to go up. You know, healthcare costs went up significantly, housing costs went up significantly, education costs all went up. But 
energy costs, household energy costs actually went down because the United States was producing more of its energy here at home. It's an amazing statistic. It's really the reason we were able to get out of the 2008 financial crisis was right. because of the fracking revolution uh, that, yeah. that occurred right here uh, in the United States in Texas and Oklahoma and in the Bakken in, in North Dakota. But at the beginning of this administration, they made some some bad policy choices. And I think it's because, because of that last decade, we really had a holiday from energy history mm. where oh, we, we were close to energy independence here in the United States. Energy prices were going down. But when energy prices are low, nobody thinks about energy. Right. And so we're at the point now where everybody's thinking about energy because costs have gone up significantly. But the Biden administration comes in and they make some really bad policy choices, closing off the Keystone XL pipeline, stopping leasing and permitting on federal lands and federal waters, cutting off Alaska, uh, the Alaska National Wildlife Refuge from exploration. So after policy choice, after policy choice, after policy choice, and then you, you add on top of it demand coming back from, from COVID-19 uh, and uh, further restrictions that they're putting on financial markets, you really end up uh, where we're no longer in this holiday from energy history. And we need to make sure that right now our focus ha is on reversing some of those policies to get us back to a point of American energy in independence and American energy. So leadership. how frustrating is it to you? Because look, you're, you're a serious guy. Uh, but, but like what they're talking about is fundamentally unserious. I mean, you listed the policy decisions that they made at the outset of this administration, which inevitably leads to part of the problem that we're having now, right? I mean, it's just that's just a supply demand thing. You don't actually have to be an economist to figure it out. It, it's real. But then you get like you know, after sustained gas and price uh, gas price increases over a period of months the Russian Ukraine thing happens and they send out every spokesperson to say it's Putin's gas hike. Uh, gas hike. I mean, you, your head has to explode at this. Right. Because gas prices were on their way right. way before the, the Putin invasion of Ukraine. Right. These right. were bad policy decisions. In fact, they were starting to call on us to pump more oil as if there's a giant valve somewhere in the Permian. You just turn just it on at API. It right. right. It's exactly right. We just dial it up. But it really, I mean, you have to you have to think back about what these policy choices are. And policy choices have consequences. Mm -hmm. And one of the consequences is, yes, we're not able to you know, get leases in federal lands and on federal waters right now. But also that sends, sends an important signal to the marketplace, mm -hmm. right? When an administration is sending the signal that we're not going to have a fossil fuel industry in the United States after 2030, who's going to invest in that industry? Yeah. We need a long-term policy that actually talks about the importance of this industry going forward, not just you know after 2030, but for decades and decades to come, because we know that these products derived from petroleum are going to be used for that long into the future. And they, but they just don't get it, Mike. I mean, the thing is, is that there is a there is a fundamental block on the left side of the aisle where they believe that they that is a future, right? But like the statistics that you're laying out. I mean, it's just, it's omnipresent in everybody, everybody's lives. It, if it didn't exist, you would have an absolute global collapse of basically every market there is. So by not supporting that at all and then trying to reverse, you know, long-held decisions about leasing and, and whatever that, that should be just no-brainers, I mean, it, they are intentionally bringing us to this point at some level, are they not? Well, I think there has to be a recognition that the foundation of world economies is energy and particularly the United States economy. Like, were it not for low energy costs, we would not have the manufacturing base that we have in this country. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'm going to say something controversial. Yeah, good. This is the place for so that. So 
we should go back to a policy that was endorsed by Barack Obama, which was an all of the above energy policy. Right. You know, one of the things that we say all the time, we know that renewables are going to play a key role in the energy future. But when we're going to have 2 billion more people in the world by 2050, and we're going to have uh, energy demand go up by 50% based on what independent analysts are saying, we're going to need all forms of energy, not just oil and gas, but we're going to need wind, we're going to need solar. But we should embrace a policy here in the United States that supports all of those, because we know that oil and gas in particular are going to be a foundation of Americans' economy and our energy future for decades and decades to come. And by the way, that's even true if every country were to meet its commitments under the Paris Climate Accords, the world would still need uh, oil and gas. In fact, they, the world would still get 50% of its energy needs from oil and gas, even if every country yeah, met its it, Paris climate agreement. It's just math. So I'm, I'm going to ask you to broaden out your scope a little bit. I mean, you were, you were chief of staff to the Speaker of the House. You clearly had every issue in your portfolio. But given the hand of cards that we're now dealt domestically in terms of our own production, and like you said, moving off energy independence until something else, and now you see this president calling Venezuela, calling, you know, he's going to apparently go to Saudi Arabia to talk about, you know, increased production at OPEC. From a foreign policy perspective, doesn't this seem like a bad idea? I mean, one of the reasons why we're able to make some of the decisions that we make from a foreign policy perspective now is because of American energy right. independence, because we're not dependent on OPEC for energy supplies. And think about just two years ago, we were talking about and celebrating how important American energy independence was. And now we're going back to the Middle East. We're going back to Venezuela. God willing, I hope we don't go back to Russia to ask them to produce more right. at some point uh, in our energy future. It is, it is because of energy that we've been given that, that flexibility uh, in foreign policy. And it's a real shame that we're squandering that opportunity because the oil and gas are still here in the United States. And the fact that this president decided that we're going to go see MBS right. rather than going to Texas and Louisiana and the North Dakota and depend on American producers for that American-made energy, I think it is, it is an incredible irony given where we are and where we should be. Well, so what is the dis disconnect on that? I mean, you've dealt with these people a little bit, right? I mean, like, we all know what their environmental goals are, but how is it? I mean, look, United States, we're, we're better at this. Right, we do this cleaner. We do it more effectively, efficiently than many places throughout the the world. How is it that we shut it down here and make have the world and still be environmentally? Well, look, and I, I think that's their key important point, Josh, is that there's one atmosphere, right? It's <laughs> right. It, you know the air that is that is in California today was in China two days ago, <laughs> and we need to be producing it here because we produce it here less expensively, but also in a way that is more environmentally conscious, right? So the natural gas produced in the United States is 40% cleaner than it is in Russia. So we need to make sure that we're producing it here. You know, the reason that the world has been able to lower greenhouse gas emissions, particularly the United States, has been able to lower greenhouse gas emissions is because we've replaced coal as the primary source of power with natural mm -hmm. gas. The most important thing that the world can do right now is to replace coal as the source of power with natural gas. And it can be done with on the backs of American producers. We have 400 years of supply of natural gas in Pennsylvania alone. <laughs> we can export that American environmental progress all over the world if we want to. 
It's just a matter of so why would I mean like why why would somebody not do that? Look, I mean, I think I think the issue is is that there's a lot of pressure uh, on this president from the the far environmental left, (laughs) and you know as a consequence of that, we're not able to make decisions that are in the best interests of the American people that can lower costs. Uh, produce more jobs and by the way the jobs in this industry yeah pay right. 50% higher than the average job in the United States I mean it is truly the bedrock of the American economy and we're squandering it if we don't pursue policies that are all of the above we're going to need nuclear we're going to need oil and gas we're going to need renewables we need all of them if we're going to power this economy and we should have a policy that embraces all of them and currently we're going from all of the above to none of the above right right now that's the concern i mean because they're also you know through some of the uh, regulations they're putting in place particularly the national environmental policy act their so-called nepa they're standing in the way of development of pipelines for oil and gas but that also stands in the way of the development of high-powered transmission lines for for renewables as well so it, i it, bet you guys were having heart attacks looking at the bbb situation <laughs> i mean they had we one of them that stuck out to us. We had a, one of the house chairmen on talking about it. Was like, not only were they shutting off leases and they were making it almost impossible to to either mine uh, anything in the United States or or get any sort of oil and gas or anything else, but then they were mandating things that, that almost exclusively were produced in China. Yes. <laughs> right. Well, well, that's that's the big concern. Uh, you know, you go from, you know, so-called big oil to big shovel, right? Yeah. And those shovels are being not used in the United States, but being used in China and right. other parts of the world. So you, you sacrifice, you're saying, well, we're not going to be dependent on OPEC anymore for our energy, but we're going to be dependent on China <laughs> for our energy. I mean, that's literally the policy choice that's being made here if we're, if we're not careful. I mean, there's straight face in that. When you go up to the Hill and you talk to these guys about that, I mean, they're just like, yeah, that's, that's our... That's our decision making here. That's a what we thought about it long and hard, but ultimately it's red China we're thrown in with. <laughs> right. It it really is incredible. And and look, we will embrace uh, policies that advance all energies going forward. You're so diplomatic. I just just want a recognition of how important this industry is going to be for decades and decades and decades. Yeah, well, you got that recognition here for sure. Let, Let me ask you a question that's not exactly in your bailiwick but it but it is we had the the premier of alberta on jason kenny what yeah. a great guy yeah yep. I, I was thinking you probably had a relationship there uh but he was talking you know not only about keystone and, and everything else but also when the Biden administration finds itself a little short on oil and gas they're not hesitant to go to russia to venezuela to opec he's like what's up you know right he's like hey we're uh we're up north. We're like just we got we got a lot of stuff here. What what is it about this administration or or just sort of a liberal philosophy that makes Canada a place that we also just can't do it here in the United States, also not uh, Canada either. Well, and Premier Kenny has been a, a stalwart in this. Uh, I've been up to the you know the oil sands uh, in Alberta. Yeah. You know, Alberta really is the Texas of Canada. That's he was he was very very forthright about that. Yeah, yeah. and uh, you know one of the great things is that we have this incredible resource up there. American companies are up there producing yeah. uh, oil and gas. Uh, it is an incredible thing to behold. And their focus on environmental protection is incredible as well. I mean, the long-term investment 
investment that companies are making up there. We're talking about being up there for 80 years to produce this and then returning it to a state that it has never seen before. Mm-hmm. I mean, their focus on environmental protection is incredible in, in Canada. And yeah, we need to make sure that we're, we're importing that product into the United States to be refined in American refineries that is employing American workers. That should be the focus. When I talk about energy independence, I talk about North American energy independence because the powerhouse that this continent could be if we get the policy right between Canada and the United States you know, and Mexico potentially as well, particularly offshore, we have a huge opportunity uh, to replace all of the barrels that are coming off the market as a consequence mm. of, of the Russian situation. We could be that powerhouse going forward if we get the policies right. And you get the leverage back, right? You don't have to go to Saudi Arabia. That's exactly right. Beg for OPEC money. That is exactly I, right. You know, and I couldn't figure out for the life of me when they tried to sell us on the Putin gas hike thing. And it was like, all right, well, so let's say, let's just in a, in a hypothetical world, let's say that that argument sells. You're telling the American people that you've allowed them to be entirely vulnerable to a decision of a madman half a continent away, right? I mean, isn't that the core of American energy messaging? Is that like, listen, you don't have to rely on some psychopath to produce vital pieces of the American economy. Every president since Jimmy Carter has focused on the importance of American energy independence and American energy leadership. This is really the first time when that focus has been diverted. And it is a it should be a real concern for every American. Mm. Because since Jimmy Carter and the and the oil crisis that they have then, we've always focused on producing more here at home. The idea that we would really offsite our energy production and our energy leadership to foreign countries, I think should should really be uh, a source of outrage for the American people right now. Yeah, totally. Because we have the energy here and we can rely on American workers to produce it in the most responsible way possible. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I got to ask you a couple of uh, sort of asides, yeah. if you will. Um, so you, you did a lot of those meetings with Trump during the, the deal. And uh, having been in a few with Trump... The thing that I uh, found greatest humor in, but also it was sort of refreshing in some ways, is that there was no policy uh, box that you typically have these conversations in yeah. surrounding this man, right? <laughs> Everything was completely off the shelf. Yes. And so we make suggestions that were like, I mean, they sounded maniacal, but then in retrospect, you're like, oh, I don't, maybe we should have thought about some of that. I had heard at one point that Trump basically wanted to make a massive investment in oil and gas when you all were negative 32 bucks a barrel or whatever that would have essentially, you know, helped provide some revenue at the time, but clearly would have been could have been useful today. Mm -hmm. How much of that was in conversation at the time and why wasn't that sort of? In practice. Yeah, they, look, there were a lot of conversations that went on with the Trump administration. I have great admiration for folks like Dan Briat, who was energy secretary at the time, and David Bernhardt, who at the Department of Interior, everybody was trying to help. The bottom line is, though, that this is an industry that is used to the boom and the bust. Yeah. And it has never been one that would go to the government and ask for handouts for anything. Well, I knew you guys weren't doing that, but I think Trump... The way it was relayed to me, it, it sounded like he was thinking about it as an investor. Yeah, right. right? I mean, so yeah, yeah he, bet on the come on that deal. <laughs> 
Well, he would have made a lot of money. Would have made he a had. lot of money. Let's, let's be honest. And the country but, would have made a lot right. of money. And so his focus really was on diplomacy, right? Trying to get there. At, you'll remember at the time, there was a price war going on between Russia and Saudi Arabia, yeah. which exacerbated the problem. So what was going on is that you had severe demand destruction happening as a consequence of COVID-19. Then at the same time, Saudi and Russia decided they were going to engage in a price war and they were flooding the market with, mm. with oil. Uh, and this was a source of real concern for American producers, of course. You may remember there was all oh, this yeah. talk of flotillas of Saudi oil coming into the United States. But as an organization, uh, you know, our, one of our core principles is that we're free market and we're free trade. And I remember during that time, I had a uh, member CEO say to me, because I was testing this, you know, you're, you really don't want us to, to try to get the government to intervene in these markets. And he said to me, you know, Mike, you can't ask for capitalism on the way up and socialism on the way down. <laughs> and that was Beautiful. really uh, heartening to me because, yeah. you know, this is an industry that, I, as I said, is used to the booms and the busts. And it's important that this industry can compete in the United States uh, if we're going to be successful going forward. And we've weathered this storm. And, uh, you know, now we're dealing with, with uh, historically high prices that are really pinching consumers. But now is not the time for, for uh, policymakers to, to think that uh, we, we should implement some, some really bad policies that are going to harm this industry. Well, that's the thing. They go from bad to worse, right? right. Because now they're not, it's not, oh, y'all didn't buy the Putin gas hike. All right, so we got to find a new boogeyman here. Uh, oil companies, right? Yes. I mean, that's the thing that we come back to with, with these guys is that like, certainly it can't be their fault. And their shitty decision making, and it has to be somebody's fault. So now I'm sure they're washing up on your shores again. Absolutely. So some of the policy options that they're pursuing right now are, are investigating price gouging. For I mean, example. it's just like, oh, yeah, investigate away, folks. It, turn off the spigot, and then oh my gosh, the price went up. Right. So the other one that you know they're talking about now is a so-called windfall profits tax, oh, right? which sure. would tax oil companies, you know, at a time of high prices. Again, a terrible policy decision. I mean, all of this should be viewed through the the principle of we need more oil. We need more natural gas at a time of high prices. And every policy that have been put forward so far will mean less oil and less natural gas. So let's pursue policies that, that incentivize people to produce more here in the United States. And part of that is, let's get permitting reform right so that we can actually build a pipeline in this country. I mean, wouldn't it be I mean, great? It, it's unbelievable how, how short-sighted some of these policies are. It's right totally now. incredible. And when you have, you know, what it was a year ago where whole eastern seaboard uh, pipeline goes out nobody can get gas and it's like well, i mean folks maybe this is an important part of our infrastructure right <laughs> yes and it should be viewed as such let me give you an example though in 1977 the united states congress actually authorized the construction of a pipeline 1977 congress passed a law that said that we would build a pipeline in the state of alaska you know connecting the prolific oil fields in the north slope to prudhoe bay that was an act of congress so it looks like we're probably going into a period of divided government. We should be thinking of other things like that that Congress could do in a divided government scenario that will advance American energy security. You know, there's a great pipeline that is under construct that should be under construction right now, connecting West Virginia and Virginia uh, uh, to to mm. uh, produce gas that can uh, be made for export uh, to Europe. It's called the Mountain Valley Pipeline. You know, maybe that should be an energy security priority that Congress should pursue Jeez. during this time. Yeah. Um, you know, the Biden administration has no plan 
um, to uh, allow for development, continued development in the Gulf of Mexico. They're required by law to do it. It's called the five-year plan. They have. They say they're going to kick it off by <laughs> June 30th. That was the expiration day that they were supposed to have it done. No plans for leasing uh, onshore or offshore at this point. No plans for further infrastructure development. We haven't built a refinery in this country since the 1970s. You know, we need a comprehensive plan here on how to deal with energy crisis and energy con- and consumer costs right now. Yeah. This is the time to do it. No, it really is. And listen, as long as I've known you, you've been in the middle of one crisis or another, and there's nobody <laughs> nobody I trust more. You somehow keep a good sense of humor about it. But I mean, look, I remember sitting in your office and walking back and forth watching Boehner just sucking down cigarettes left and right, <laughs> dealing with like financial crises. I actually thought the world might end at that point, but we all survived. <laughs> I, I, I do. I will. I do recall one time when we were dealing with the, the fiscal cliff negotiations, and we were trying to pass a bill that would, you know, somewhat uh, lower taxes for the American people, but they weren't as low as they would have been, you know, the day before. And I remember going into John's office and we weren't able to pass the bill. This was one of those times when, you know, Mitch McConnell had to, had to come in, swoop in and, and cut a deal. And I, I went in and I had a letter of resignation in my, in my pocket. And he looks at me and he says, Michael, I don't want anybody stressing about this. <laughs> and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, like, this is the lowest point of my, your speakership and my time as your chief of staff. And you don't want anybody stressing about it. <laughs> so, yeah, so he's followed you ever since. Exactly. Good. Oh, that's a good, excellent Keep stuff. Keep your head about you, right? Well, you've now become sort of the dean of all of the uh, trade associations in Washington, D.C., so you're doing good work, my Thanks, man. Thanks, Josh. Appreciate it. Uh, I have three questions for yes, you. Yes, sir. All right. You know what's coming. And I'm sure you've thought about it. You're, you're a listener, which is incredible. I am a longtime listener, first-time caller. Uh, so, all right. So the first one, your last meal on earth, what would it be? Joe's Barbecue, Kansas City, Missouri. There you go. So without I was, hesitation, I was a I was a kid who grew up in the Chicago suburbs, and uh, barbecue for us was uh, grilling outside <laughs> on on propane, right? <laughs> right, right. It's a flipping burger. Then I, then I married a girl from from the Kansas City area, and I was exposed to real barbecue. And for my money, Joe's Barbecue in Kansas City is is the best on earth. I'm sure just Stefano's giving you some thoughts on that too. <laughs> that's good. I like that. No, I listen. That's hard to argue with. All right, so I'm interested in this one though. Um, if you never got into this line of work at all, no politics, right? No public policy, no public service, no advocacy. And you have this great big blue sky hole you could fill anything with. What would it be? So this is a tough one for me because I think, Josh, you and I are a lot alike, that all I ever really wanted to do was something that the intersection of public policy and politics. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I was a kid who... You know, grew up in the Chicago suburbs, and uh, only and I wanted to come to Washington to make a difference in my country. And uh, fortunately, I've had a, a lot of luck along the way to get there. But I think if there's one thing that I could do, I would switch careers with Hugh Jackman, <laughs> who is my absolute favorite. He stands as I stand at the at the intersection of public policy and policy. He stands at this incredible intersection of music and Hollywood. <laughs> And he, I think a he, show tune or two, yeah, right? And, yeah. uh, and you know, he, he's filling the role that Dick Van Dyke uh, once once filled in Hollywood. That's and, uh, right. He's like a real five tool performer. <laughs> exactly. He's got all that stuff. <laughs> he's got it all going. I like him. that. Well, that's yeah. a good appreciation. All right. Yeah. Sing, dance, and entertain. That's what we do in the variety program. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So last last question. I am actually fascinated to hear your answer. I think I know what it is, but I'm. 
So it's thrill of victory, agony of defeat. You probably don't need the further explanation of what this yep. all means. Yep. Where are you? So I think most people who know me uh, think I'm an optimist, and so they would assume that I am thrill of victory, but I am absolutely agony <laughs> yeah, of defeat. Totally. That's what I was going to say. I mean, I mean for me, uh, uh, you know, there's that old story at the end of the movie Patton about, you know, Patton tells this story of, you know, Roman conquerors returning from the wars, you know, being uh, feted with all sorts of parades, but they always had someone whispering in their ear that all glory is fleeting. And I feel that way that, you know, I never remember the victories, but the sting of losing stays with me forever. <laughs> yeah. Well, and if you stick around as long as you have summers, you're going to get a little of both, right? I mean, losing finds you at some point. <laughs> That's you can't exactly be in this. Right. You can't be in this line of work with nothing but aces. <laughs> That's exactly. I right. I mean, we we saw we had some gallows humor back in the day. <sighs> Man, those were the good old days. Just so. just for just as we as we wrap up, give you a, a good indication. When Mike and I were working together, Republicans were basically non-existent. <laughs> exactly right we just gotten crushed in two successive elections and we're looking at each other like uh okay now we're in charge of this and it was like somehow you had to figure out how to go from absolute basement levels in the house and the senate to try to rebuild in a hurry and uh, well and i do think uh house and senate republicans could find themselves in that same position yeah. and that's why what they're doing right now is so very important so you know, my view is, you know, there's this ongoing debate of whether you have an agenda before the election or you don't have an agenda before the election. I think the most important part of having an agenda pre-election for House Republicans is that it gives you an agenda for how you're going to govern. Mm -hmm. And to me, you know, at some point, you're going to have to find ways, as we found, that you're going to have to vote for a debt limit increase. You're going to have to vote to, to keep the government open. And House Republicans have to answer this question. <laughs> what am I going to get for it? And yeah. they have to do a lot of probing and thinking about that before the election, because once the election's over, uh, you, you can't have that those kind of strategic conversations. It strikes me as something that may perhaps have not gotten easier since we've been doing it. <laughs> there may be some opinions there that... Yeah, uh, I think that's right. <laughs> but fortunately, Mitch McConnell's still there to help guide the way. Yeah, well, it's, it is a... Uh, it is going to be interesting. I hope you're right. I hope they get the opportunity. But in the meantime, keep us updated on all the energy stuff. This has been fantastic. We need to know what's going on because we don't hear it from this administration at all. But we do get it from Mike Summers. Thank you. API. Thanks so much for coming. Love the show. Man, he is so good. That was one of the best interviews we've had on the show. He's so good. He's so smart. I've known him for years. And, and I mean it. Like We've been in a lot of foxholes together throughout the years when we were serving um, at the same time. And every single major problem that we had confronting this country, he always was just completely the voice of reason, had a good sense of his gallows humor is fantastic, by the way. But like, I couldn't be more happy that you've got a guy like this speaking truth to power on gas prices and the role of American energy in this administration. It's well, great. One of the points that he made that I thought was so interesting was that a lot of these oil and gas jobs pay very well for, for people who are working them. And I don't know when the last time you guys drove through Pennsylvania was. He talked about how big the oil or the gas fields are in Pennsylvania. Yeah. But if you roll through Pennsylvania near any one of these gas fields and you look at the trucks that these guys are driving, every single one of them is platinum this, Larry at that. Hell yeah. You know you know it is it's a it it pays a great it's a wage. Good job. Yeah. And and I don't know for the life of me why this administration would try to strip that of people, especially during this economy. 
Yeah, 100%. Well, anyway, I want to thank our sponsor again, Masterworks. The place that you go for that, masterworks.art backslash ruthless. They'll get you to the top of the queue. I think we did it, fellas. Absolutely. Also, also, we have a Wednesday episode. Let's not forget. Oh, that's right. Big surprise. Yes, we've got a great episode coming up. We're going to have Governor Kemp on the episode. Yeah, coming on back. A little victory lap for the governor. All right. Well, if I say so myself, absolute banger of an episode, gentlemen. Uh, we had fun. We even we even told some non-G-rated stories. So, <laughs> shout out to all the families that out there. That your sensibilities. Despite, despite your suppression. <laughs> so, until next time, minions, keep the faith, hold the line, and own the libs. We'll see you on Wednesday. Stay ruthless. <laughs>